Welcome to Noon Edition. I'm Bob Zaltzberg, editor of the Herald Times in Bloomington. And today we're going to talk about the Bloomington-based Hope Foundation. Joining me in the studio is co-host Mary Catherine Carmichael. And we have one guest with us today. Alan Blankstein is here. He's the founder and president of the Hope Foundation. If you have questions or comments, please phone us at 855-0811 or 877-285-9348 or send your email to noon at indiana.edu. Alan, welcome to the program. Thank you. It's great to Mary, be here. Mary Catherine. Hi, good, Bob. Good to see you. Um, let me give a little bit more background on Alan before we get started because he's done a, a, a lot of things. Uh, I'm just going to highlight a couple things. He's an author. He is the author of the best-selling book, Failure is Not an Option, Six Principles that Guide Student Achievement in High-Performing Schools. The book has been awarded the Book of the Year by the National Staff Development Council and nominated for three other national and international awards. And he also is a uh, public speaker of note. He's provided keynote presentations and workshops for virtually every major educational organization. So it keeps you busy. And, and a note to the other guests, he brought us a free copy of his book. So, hey. You know. <laughs> <laughs> she said that. <laughs> All right. I had to pay for them. <laughs> well, so, uh, you know, the, the start – Bloomington's got a lot of things that, uh, that um, are – sort of hidden treasures in town. And it sounds to me from what I've read, the Hope Foundation may be very well be one of those because you do a lot of work that's outside of, of our sphere here. So why don't we kind of start at the beginning? What is the Hope Foundation? What, what's your mission? The mission is to support educational leaders over time and to help them create school cultures where failure is not an option for any student. And so we go about that in a, in a number of ways. I mean, uh, anything from starting out on the, on the light end of the pool, the toe-in-the-water end of the pool where they might read a book, to five-year-long change efforts within their districts. And it's the latter that's been so exciting for us, Bob, because we've had just amazing results over the past decade in all kinds of school districts uh, throughout North America. Okay. So how did you get started? <clears throat> That's a that's a, a windy, twisty road. <laughs> How far back do you want me to go? I, uh, I, I, you know, I, I went to school here in Indiana University. I, I came in 1985, and um, I started uh, working for Phi Delta Kappa, wonderful educational organization. And after a few years of doing that, I started another company which um, grew and is still doing well here. It uh, at the time was called the National Educational Service. And I spun that off in 80, um, let's see, I'm sorry, it was uh, 98. And um, when I spun that off, it was with the intent of really concentrating all of my efforts on what was already in existence but only got a little of my attention, and that was the Hope Foundation. And it was kind of serving as a little, um, you know, uh, stepchild to the, to the for-profit. So once I spun off the for-profit, I could dedicate all of my time and passion to the nonprofit. Now, HOPE stands for Harnessing Optimism and Potential Through Education. Can you expand on uh, you know, how, you, how you do that? Well, you mean um, what I, kind of work do we actually do? Yeah, I mean how, how, you, how you harness that optimism. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, and, I mean you, you're trying to, to build, as, you know, as the name says, I mean the HOPE Foundation, what a, you know, what a great name. It gives a lot of – it gives optimism right, right. there. But you're, you're trying to harness optimism and potential. Yeah. Through education. So you're trying to work with, for every student, it sounds to me. That's what it sounds to me. Like. Yes. I, I think, you know, I, I like to think of that on, on a couple of different levels. You know, spiritually speaking, I mean, uh, I think about hope, and not religiously, but spiritually think, speaking. I, I think of it as one of the main elements that that allow people to overcome amazing obstacles. And Archbishop Desmond Tutu is our honorary chair. Um, and not for religious reasons. This is a non-sectarian 501c3, but because of the philosophical alignment and the fact that, you know, he has done this with an entire nation. He's harnessed hope and he's harnessed the possible to enable this group to overcome a, four decades of apartheid, which was, you know, the most brutal thing that we'd seen in, in recent times up to date, up to that time. So there's that element. And then there are practical elements too. Um, so for example, on the practical scale, when we're in schools, we need to set very clear, specific goals. We call them SMART goals. And that's an acronym. Uh, and show people that they can achieve them. 
And they could be small ones at first because we go into some of the toughest school districts in our nation, for example. Um, they sometimes have uh, challenges with um, the, the place falling apart. Mm-hmm. So we might set a really small, smart goal of you know just having the place looking better and defining that in specific terms. And after they get one smart goal accomplished, then they think, hmm, maybe I can make the next one. So there are specific parts to that. And then in between that kind of overarching spiritual dimension and the specific steps that you might take in a school, there, there's a foundational piece for all of our work, um, Bob and Mary, and that's the relationships. Because often we go into places where trust is an issue, where I've been told this before and it didn't happen, where, you know, there's not clear communication from the leadership and on and on. We've been through all of those scenarios and it's important to build a relationship where people will start to trust that you're going to do what you say you're going to do and that you care about them. So that's those are some of the elements and, you know, I can go on and on. Oh, but, yeah. But you get the idea. <laughs> so is your focus K through 12? It is. Okay. All right. Let, let me give the phone numbers. We're talking again with uh, Alan Blankstein, who is with the uh, – he's a founder and president of the Hope Foundation. 855-0811 is the local number, 877-285-9348. If you're outside of the Bloomington area and you can send your email to noon at indiana.edu. Um, Again, I want to get some of the basics down. You, you have uh, you have an office here in Bloomington, and you have uh, I think you told me before the program thirty five employees here, correct? And then another fifteen employees. Yeah, we we have uh, about that. Um, I'd say it's a little more than fifty total. Mm-hmm. And so, walk me through a relationship that the Hope Foundation would have with a school corporation. Let's say uh, you know you can pick pick one that's somewhere. Uh, you can name it or not name it, and you know who. How many people from the Hope Foundation would work with that corporation? Would it be everybody? Would it be one person? Would it be you? Um, and what kind of work is done? And it, yeah, and is it corporation-wide or just school by school? Mm-hmm. Well, those are great questions. <laughs> Thank you. Um, it used to be school by school and rarely will we do that now. We by and large look at district-wide change. Um, there are many reasons for that which we could get into if you'd like. Um, but uh, the other part of the question about what do we do – um, a lot of these places start out by coming to one of our 20 conferences a year, and those conferences are rather large now. They used to be smaller, but uh, we're looking at anywhere from 500 people to 2,000 people now per conference. And are those all over the country? They are, and they're in Canada too. Okay. And um, so if they come to a conference and they bring a leadership team, they then may want to explore how they can go further. And if they look at our 10-year-long record, you know, they say, well, hey, we'd like to have that record and let's do the same thing here. But then we say, well, not so fast. You know, there are lots of things that you need to do to organize yourselves to be able to take advantage of this. And we'll help them organize themselves. For example, uh, one of the things they need is for the, uh, the larger district to buy in. And it's often the case that there's a smaller district team. They say, this is it. We love it. We're going to do it. And we say, no, we don't think that'll work. Um, I I, I mentioned to you before the program started that we're starting to do nationwide capacity building in South Africa. And um, the minister of education there said to me, um, we have, um, uh, what was it? Uh, I think it was 122,000 schools. Can you change them? (laughs) (laughs) No problem. And I said, not tomorrow. (laughs) Um, And I said, and you wouldn't really want us to. Really what you want us to do is gradate this so that the schools that are ready and that have bought in and do understand what we do are your early adopters and we support them with an eye towards how we can help them in turn do the same for the next wave. So uh, I'm getting back to the point that when we go to a district in the U.S., it's often the case that they need to understand on a broader scale what we do. Mm-hmm. Once they understand on a broader scale, then they need to buy in and say, yes, we'd like to do this. And then once they do that, we will have teams that are in attendance there and helping them and facilitating dialogue, facilitating and modeling what we want them to do when they go back to their schools. So we do work with the leadership teams, whereas many organizations work with the principals and others work with the superintendents and so on and so forth. We work with teams. 
and we'll um, do with them um, one of the six principles that you see in the book in front of you. We'll, we'll start to work on one of those principles and model, for example, how do you create a mission that's meaningful? And then how do you get that mission to be alive in your organization? And when I say meaningful, I mean, for example, what happens when students don't succeed? That's got to be part of your thinking. Um, so really nuts and bolts things and not just flowery ideas. And then we say, okay, uh, we've worked through it here. We've talked about it in this setting. Now how are you going to go out and do it in your own schools? And then they're accountable for doing some work that they've agreed they will do and coming back to us again and showing to one another what they've accomplished. And eventually the learning starts to take place across schools as well as within schools. Mm-hmm. So let's go to uh, you know one school. Let's say one school in the mythical state of uh, Connecticut. Okay. Do you have any schools there? In fact, I was just contacted <laughs> by uh, Connecticut to to start some in depth work there. Uh huh. Uh-huh. So uh, so now well, let's look forward. Then you've been contacted. Then so what what do you do next? Will you go there and maybe take a team of people to talk with state officials, one school corporation? What they want to do in particular is to have us host a conference there. Mm-hmm. And I think that that's a decent way to start and many of our schools have. Um, not really start because they've been sending people to our conferences for a while. So now they say, hey, look, airfare is going up. I'm losing my people for a wonderful time in Sedona, Arizona when it's freezing here. None of their peers like them coming back talking about sunshine and what fun they had on the desert plains. We want you to come here in the freezing cold with us mm-hmm. and reach all of the people at once. So that would be the next step with this particular group. Then that helps that other process I mentioned before about wide-scale buy-in. Mm-hmm. And once they start to develop that, then we can, we can talk with them about one or another of our constructs. We have a construct to go into very low-performing, low-efficacy schools intensively every month and to work with the principal side-by-side, work with the leadership team side-by-side, model, do, instruct, talk about how do you look at the data, how do you um, disaggregate it so that the kids who aren't doing well are identified, and what kinds of strategies do you already know that will work and which ones can we import to you that make sense for you in your context. Mm Um, And then we've got another construct that's across all of the schools, and that would be our leadership academy. And in that construct, they'd get together four times a year, and we would facilitate the dialogue, as I was mentioning before, wrapped around the six principles of failure is not an option, so that they start to actualize those principles in their context. We model what we want them to do. They do it, and they come back and give us the homework. Okay. Now, again, in – Failure is not an option. I mean you talk about – I haven't read the book yet because I just got it. But you talk about the principles uh, for sustaining learning communities. I mean learning communities is kind of uh, one of the catchphrases yes. of, of what you do. Um, and you have these six principles. So why don't we go through uh, – well, first, d- just define learning communities and sort of give, give our listeners sort of an idea of – of what you mean by that? That's a brilliant question, Bob, because, you know, one of the <laughs> – it is because one of the problems that we have is that, you know, because it's, as you said, a catchphrase now, everybody thinks they are it or they've – some people even say we've done it. We're done being a learning community. It's time to do differentiated instruction. We're moving on. You know, we already did that. And um, so it's, it's very tricky because, of course, you're never done being one um, and you never are quite one. Uh, so it's a constant process of learning um, that's set out by certain guidelines for how you go about the learning. So, for example, in in the way that we've defined it, and learning communities have been defined since I started working with uh, W. Edwards Deming, the quality guru, and then after that, Peter Senge, who um, created the learning organization concept. And so it's evolved and evolved. But... The way that we're looking at it is that, uh, for example, you'll have a a conversation in your uh, team meeting that's really in-depth about instruction and about the students who need the most help and about how you get them over the bar and about why is it that your student is doing um, better than in your class than he is in my class. So it gets down to real specifics. Now, to have a conversation where I say, hey, Bob, I noticed that your student, um, you know, Johnny, is doing better in your class than he is in my class, and I really need some help. 
how did you get there with Johnny? Let me watch you teach. And in fact, could you watch me teach? I'd like some feedback. To get to that point requires a certain kind of culture of trust, of, you know, common mission, vision, values, and goals, and so on. So um, it's, it's, it, I gave you a little picture of what a learning community would look like, mm-hmm. and then there are other elements as well. Yeah, well, the, uh, the answer is, uh, I mean, it, it does involve learning organizations. I mean, it's very similar in business or learning organizations, and you're just sort of transferring a lot of that to the schools, and I'm sure expanding on it. Well, for your business audience... The short answer is yes. And, and for any business audience, you need a short answer. That's right. That's right. <laughs> Let me give the phone numbers again. 855-0811-877-285-9348 and noon at indiana.edu is the email address. So in these six principles that you have, you mentioned the first one, common mission, vision, values, and goals. I think for any organization, that's certainly very important. So let's go through uh, the rest of these. Systems for prevention and intervention. Well, before we, we scan over the first one, let me just add okay. uh, just add uh, one other thing, which is the specificity with which you define these things the, uh, is very critical. Mm-hmm. And so is the level of, of uh, commitment to them. So I can go in the closet, you know, here in, in, at WFIU and come out with the tablets, you know, like Moses and say, here it is. And that will get me nowhere. It may be brilliant, but no one else has bought into it. They don't know what it is. And then the third thing is that um, when it comes to, um, you know, those those items, when we talk about things like goals, we also have the SMART goal acronym, which is specific, measurable, achievable, results-oriented, and time-bound. And a lot of times people miss one or another of those letters. So it takes a long time to understand how to create a really good goal. Mm-hmm. That being said, uh, you, had, you, you wanted to talk about... Number two. Number two. Systems for prevention and intervention. The concept behind that is simply that um, we are in schools in the worst scenarios in our country. And believe me, they're pretty bad in the worst scenarios in our country. We're in high-achieving schools. And in both cases, there tends to be a certain amount of kids who don't make it. And in the, in the high-achieving schools, what happens is that they, they were never supposed to make it. In other words, schools weren't really designed for success for all kids. Back at the turn of the century, we only had 6% of the kids graduating. So now we have to you know, make a whole different shift in our thinking, which is how do we make every kid succeed? And in order to do that, we have to explicitly address the question of what do you do when they aren't succeeding? How soon will you know it? If you know it by the end of the year, it's too late. Mm -hmm. Um, What are the possible interventions that work with Johnny and Sally? And what about the ones that don't work with uh, uh, Sally? They just work with Johnny. And what do you do about Sally? So we have a gradation of interventions. And if one doesn't work, you go up the scale and make it more and more intense. I'm going to go to three, four, five, and six in a minute, but I want to want to stop here and, and ask a, another question. Two, two weeks ago, we had on the program um, the two principals from North and South High School and, and Jim Harvey. Um, I was involved, went out, went out with them to see a New Tech High School and the New Tech Foundation. Um, and so when you, when you talk about how some, some students aren't succeeding and you have to be able to, to jump in and figure out why they're not succeeding and, and – Try to help them succeed. Um, I guess the the long, the short, the short question in this very long whatever it is I'm I'm saying here <laughs> is you know can in the public school model that we have today, um, which is sort of a one size fits all model. I mean, is that something that we need that we can go forward with, or should school corporations like the MCCSC is doing be looking at various models to maybe help students who don't fit in the the current model? have other models that they can work within? Yeah, that's a great question. It's the ongoing debate. Um, my, my short answer is whatever works. Mm-hmm. And so we see schools that have schools within a school mm-hmm. and have small families of students that they keep together throughout their you know, career, their, their schooling career. We see alternative schools. Um, you know, uh, we see a lot of different configurations. But, but the one thing I would say is that a lot of times – it's easier to have an alternative where you banish the offending child, quote-unquote, and never, never to be seen again 
than it is to say maybe that's the canary in the coal mine. Maybe our coal mine is toxic. Maybe it's not serving 20 percent or 30 percent of the kids. And if I was a corporation and I, and I had 30 percent of the computers falling off the conveyor belt before it made it to the other end, <laughs> I probably wouldn't run the conveyor belt faster and faster. I would fix the conveyor belt so that it accommodated those 30 percent falling off mm-hmm. and I had a better outcome. Mm-hmm. All right. Number three on this list. <laughs> well, this is very. This is number three is very similar to a lot of the things that that uh, our guest talked about two weeks ago, and, and yes. what they do at the New Technology High School: collaborative teaming for teaching and learning. So, how how do you explain or how do you define that? It's focused on teaching and learning is the important thing, um, and that gets back to what I was saying before. A lot of collaboration in the past has been around things like um, hmm. Where do you think we should take our field trip this year? Or um, aren't you just sick of Ronald? The way he comes in, does he come in late to your, that isn't collaboration. Uh, collaboration as defined here and as defined in all the learning communities literature does what I was talking about before. And what Newman and Weilich, um said in their decade-long study of schools that were uh, performing at high levels was that, that uh, teachers did three things. One was that they had clear, shared focus on all students' learning, and and they understood what it was. So there was a commonality. My definition is the same as yours. Even the kids would know. They wouldn't even have to turn in their homework. They could grade themselves and say, I did this wrong and that wrong, because there's that much clarity. The second thing is that we collaborate around that stated purpose. And that second item is you know, the kind of driving down to instruction, driving down to specific strategies and meeting outside of the meeting to see each other teach and to give feedback and doing whatever it takes, basically. Um, And then the third thing they said was collective commitment to all students' learning. And what that means is that the kind of collaboration that we advocate isn't just collaborating in your little team, but it's starting to look at you as responsible for the entire school. And in in the case of some of our higher performing districts, for schools across the street. Mm -hmm. So you're responsible for more than your teaching. You're responsible for your your brothers and sisters teaching, and you're responsible for the schools across the street eventually. I can see how that might not always be well received. Mm, You got that right, Mary. (laughs) (laughs) Well, you know that that, that you're talking about the across the street part? Um, Both. I can see it both internally and externally, Mm -hmm, yeah. mm -hmm. That's why that relationship piece I mentioned before is so critical. You know, why isn't it well received? Threatening. That's right. <clears throat> it's threatening. And it's threatening because I don't trust you. Yeah. Why are you in my classroom? Aren't you here to evaluate me? And so you have to kind of shift the whole dynamic. No, we're here to learn together. I want you in my classroom. I want to be in your classroom. It's just the way it goes. That's just the way we do things here. Mm-hmm. And it has to become so free and easy that we all trust and understand and get along to the extent that we can do that. That's got to be a real culture change for most institutions, I would think. I'm glad you said institutions because I would say it's a culture change for businesses as well. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, that, that uh, you know, that old evaluation, you know, process just kills relationships. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, it'll do that. <clears throat> We're talking with Alan Blankstein today. He is the founder and president of the Hope Foundation. We've been going through the six principles for sustaining learning communities. Uh, we've gone through the first three. Um, I'm going to give our phone numbers and we're going to take a short break and get back to the uh, the last three and various other topics that we we uh, want to talk about. Um, the numbers again, eight. 855-0811 in Bloomington, 877-285-9348 outside of the local calling area. And you can send your email to noon at indiana.edu. You're listening to Noon Edition. We'll be right back. listening to Noon Edition on member-supported WFIU. Production support comes from Closets 2, providing organized and expanded closet and storage space for home office and garage, using a variety of systems with no major renovations. Closets 2 owned and operated in Bloomington, 332-2233. And from South Dunn Street Project, represented by Brian Lappin, real estate, 
classic bungalow-inspired architecture in the Bryan Park neighborhood of Bloomington, www.southdunnstreet.info. WFIU is a media sponsor for the Hoosier Hills Food Bank's annual Soup Bowl benefit. Local area potters, restaurants, community musicians, and residents provide their services. Proceeds benefit the Hoosier Hills Food Bank. The 13th annual Soup Bowl benefit for Hoosier Hills Food Bank takes place at the Monroe County Convention Center Sunday, February 18th. More information at WFIU.org. Welcome back to Noon Edition. I'm Bob Zaltzberg from the Herald Times along with Mary Catherine Carmichael. And Alan Blankstein is with us today. He's the founder and president of the Hope Foundation. If you have questions or comments about our topics today, and we're talking about uh, how, how the, the work that the Hope Foundation does with schools and trying to uh, make sure that every student is successful in a school setting. If you have questions or comments, please phone us at 855-0811 or 877-285-9348 or send your email to noon at indiana.edu. Was that shorthand appropriate that how, how students can be successful? All students can be successful. I was just wondering if we could get you on our staff. <laughs> <laughs> oh, well, <clears throat> thanks for the offer. <laughs> well, we were, we were going through um, the six principles for sustaining learning communities. We've gone through three. Let's go through three more uh, fairly quickly. Uh, data-driven decision-making and continuous improvement. The the idea kind of dovetails with what I was saying about the collaborative teams. Um, the uh, the the basis for decision making becomes data as opposed to perception or I feel like it should be this or that. I mean, there's there's often interpretation of the data, which becomes a skill that you have to develop in house. Um, but until five years or so ago, we didn't even really look at the data, and now um, schools are starting to align everything around that, so that we're saying. Are we teaching what we're testing? Are we teaching something over here and testing something over there? Mm -hmm. Um, And what about the district test versus the state test versus the national test? So getting alignment um, is is important in the data. And so is disaggregating the data. Um, For the longest time, we've had high-performing, basically homogeneous schools and suburbs do fairly well or very well. But that's until you break it out and you say, well, what about – what about the poor kids that slip in that are, you know, working in the neighborhood because their parents are doing your dry cleaning? Or what about the, uh, the growing Latino community that's showing up in your school? Of course, it was only two before and it's eight now. But if, you know, six out of the eight are in special ed, you've got a problem in your school. Mm-hmm. So disaggregating the data has really been wonderful in terms of starting to look at um, those subpopulations that were underserved heretofore. And picking up trends, I would think, as well. That's true. That's true. And in fact, Mary, you know, looking at the data over time really helps as opposed to in those snapshots. So there's a lot of stuff that you can do and it helps you solve disputes. Mm -hmm. If one person says, really, I think we should be tracking students and the other person says, no, we shouldn't track students, then you can just have a yes, we can, no, we can't. Mm -hmm. And the the solution should come from the data and the research. Define tracking students for people who are in the education business. Well, um, it was popular for a long time to create um, these kind of, you know, uh, tracks for lower performing students and that they would really never get out of the track. You'd have, you know, uh, we say in elementary, you know, you've got the, 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 uh, the blue jays and the red birds and then you've got the, the crows and then the crow poop. You know, I mean, <laughs> yeah. they've they yeah. got all these tracks yeah. and the kids get in, they don't get out. Yeah, we were tracked through mm-hmm. seventh and eighth grade. We were tracked, you know, it was 7-1, you know, all the way down. And the kids, you know, I still think of kids based on sort of where they were in that track. Oh, yeah, that's and, you know, a, those are in their lifelong, 50s now. Those are lifelong labels. <laughs> they are. Yeah. They are. And, yeah. and, you know, some of the brightest kids are, are misidentified as being special ed. Mm-hmm. Uh, and why? It's because they learn in a different way or because mm-hmm. they're so creative and so genius that school doesn't accommodate them and then they act out. Mm-hmm. You know, so there's just a lot of a lot of things that come in when you start labeling kids negatively that I, I think need to be abolished. Mm-hmm. And our best schools have eliminated special ed by and large. We have a phone call. Okay, so. I'll, I'll, I'll wait for that. We'll defer for, to I'll the phone defer. call. Okay, let's go to Aaron. Aaron? Hello? Hello, Aaron. Go ahead. I had a question. Um, when you came out of the break, you talked about student success um, for everyone. Um, and I think that's a great philosophy, but... 
I, I feel like that breaks down sometimes when the, it, it's my feeling that a lot of our students aren't learning an acceptance for failure at school. Uh, they're learning an acceptance for failure everywhere but school, whether it's at home or other circumstances that are involved. And how do you break the cycle? Uh, I'm a high school uh, teacher. How do you break the cycle for somebody who comes in as a 14 or 15-year-old and the, the expectation from home is n- nil? There's no expectation for homework. There's no expectation for uh, participation. Or, or when there is an expectation, it is, you know, he tried. He did two problems. Um, you know, that, there's, just, there's just a total disconnect there. How do, you, how do you address that? Aaron, let me say, I think you've brought us into number five on this principles, which is active engagement from family and community. So I think that's part of this uh, answer probably. But, Alan, you go ahead. Well, Aaron, I think that's a good question, and I really think you had two of them in there. One was how do you create a school where um, not only is failure not an option, as the book says, but also where is, uh, uh, you know, failure is not an issue. And that means that you're not, you're not breaking the spirits of kids because they failed a high-stakes test, for example, and now they can't, they can't leave high school. Um, and, and, and that's, you know, that's, that's a tough issue um, to handle because... Right now, there's a lot of um, of uh, testing superimposed by the state and the Fed, and um, so I think we do have to say that's the context that we're working in. And a lot of us don't think that high stakes tests and many of the other things that we're um, now seeing are helpful to children. So how do we work within that context productively with the kids? And I'll I'll give you some answers to that from uh, some of the schools. But before I do, the the second question that I think you brought up was you know, um, are we really responsible for kids if they're coming to school unprepared? Is, is that basically what that second part was? Not are we responsible, because <clears throat> we're responsible for everybody. That my, my question is more focused on, you know, the school isn't the root of the problem. And, and how, do you, how do you, we've talked about institutional change at schools or businesses. How do you really be an agent for institutional change in the home? I mean, raising kids is, is tough. There's no question about that. And, and if, if there are some, some things that if they don't get done, the student or the child is the, is the one who fails. And oftentimes the, the parents don't know what they don't know or uh, the, the abilities to have schools influence some of the things that go on at home is, is pretty monumental. Right. But so- the schools take all the responsibility for it. Right. So I'd like to address that last one because it's fresh in our minds now that you clarified it. Um, the, uh, the, the way that schools that we've worked with have successfully bridged that issue uh, where there's one set of expectations in the school and back home, um, they may not be supporting the same expectations, is that those schools actually change. Um, I'll give you a couple of examples. Um, in one of the middle schools that we've been in, um, kids came late uh, to the first period. It's common. happens all the time. But since they were serving um, a, a, a group of students for which that was really a major problem and it, it was widespread, they just changed their system. They said, okay, our first period is going to be um, an experiential ed- uh, physical education class. For as many of the kids as we can provide that, that's the way we're going to structure things. That's when you get your, your – in other words, they restructured. And, and I'm not saying it's easy, but they said we're going to do what it takes to, to, to make this happen. So they restructured. That was a physical education experiential class. The kids did you know, blind trust walks and they did you know, log races and all this. The class served to orient the kids to the day, so to speak. It was a transition from whatever they were coming in with from home. Um, which, you know, would get in the way of their learning if they just popped into an algebra class right away. So it served as a transition. The kids liked it. Um, They wanted to be there for that, so they came more often. Um, And if they didn't come, they didn't lose any academics, you see. So um, the relationships were built. It oriented them for the day, and and it worked better for everyone. Um, Another Another um, uh, uh, elementary school had uh, changed its policy from if you're late, you go to the principal's office to if you're late, you go right to class. We don't want to lose any more time. You've already lost enough. And then if it was incessant lateness, what they did was they took it up with the home. 
they realize this is probably a home issue. They talk to the kid and they find out because, I mean, these are elementary kids. So they said this is the home. We have to see what we can do to get those kids here on time. And maybe it's something that you didn't expect. Maybe the, 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 in one case we had a, a, a child who was sharing shoes with his brother and, you know, they went every other day. You know, I mean, there's all kinds of things that are going on out there. But what happens is the orientation of the school shifts from we're going to do what we do and you adhere to that to we're going to do whatever it takes for this to work. Another school, the Pappas School in Arizona, isn't one of our schools, but it's quite famous for its work in picking up homeless kids. Every day the bus routes change because the kids are living in different places, on the, you know, different shelters and so on. Um, and they started raising money to have uh, a place where the kids come first, first in the morning and start looking for what, what are their basic needs. Do you need a toothbrush? Do you need you know, a hat? Is it too cold? Whatever. So in other words, they revamped their school to meet the needs of those kids. And this is not easy and it's unfortunate. As I agree with you, Aaron. It's, it's Aaron, correct? Yes. Yeah, I, I agree with you. It's unfortunate that the problems of society show up at our schools or that we even have those problems. I'm impassioned about that. But, you know, on the other hand, I just think that the only bastion of hope for this country and the only place that touches every child in our country right now is the schools. So we just have to do what we can to ameliorate the issues that never started in the schools and shouldn't even be showing up in the schools, but voila, here they are. Well, and I hate to take airtime, but if it's okay, no, go right ahead. Your 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 uh, suggestion of moving PE to first period in in today's day and age. I mean, I can already hear what people on both sides of the fence say to that: is well, you're lowering standards. You're taking the kids who have trouble getting to school, and instead of holding them accountable, you're creating a situation where now. They're in a phys ed class where it's experiential, and, you know, we all know what that means. You know, this is people outside of education. We know what that means. That means they all do what they want. There's no standards, and when they graduate from school, that's not the reality of the workplace. So you're lowering the standards, and in essence, you're, you are tracking again, uh, and you're, you're allowing kids to, instead of allowing them to fail because they're not meeting the standards, you're allowing them to pass by changing the standards. Uh, and that, that seems to be... Uh, you know, one of the one of the common threads of the uh, of this argument as well. Well, it's it's. I'm glad you bring that up too, Aaron, because that does come up. And um, you know, my my response to that is that if they're not in school, they're not learning. Um, and if they're in school, you have a shot at it. And if you're doing something to get them into school, you have a better shot than if you're not. And uh, the the idea uh, extends to relationships. The kids who do well, regardless of what you do, are the kids who are going to do, do uh, well because that's the orientation and the structure that they have from a very you know, firm standpoint at home. They're not, they're not my concern. They're going to do fine whether you teach well or teach media, you know, uh, mediocrity. Um, on the other hand, uh, if we're losing 20 percent of our kids or whatever percent it is, um, and they need a relationship to want to come to school, then I say we give them that relationship and then we get into academics because if they don't have that reason to be there and they see no future for themselves, they think, hey, I'm going to be dead at 20 anyway. Why do I need to come here? I'll come here and have fun when I'm ready to come here. If you've got you know, children like that at your school, you have to make what you can happen. Uh, you, can, you have to make the relationship that you need um, happen on the front end before you get to any of the teaching or they're just not really going to care. And, you know, I, I, I don't whip out a lot of studies when I, when I talk about these things, but this is, this is the work confirmed by Ferguson. If you want Ron Ferguson out of Harvard, it's confirmed by um, the Trust Fund and uh, Katie Haycock and, you know, numerous others that uh, a relationship is a precursor to the learning for many of our students. All right, Aaron. Appreciate it. Hey, thanks Great a lot questions. for the call. Thank, Thank you. you. All right, eight five five zero eight one one eight seven seven two eight five nine three four eight and noon at indiana dot edu. Those were those were good questions and, and pretty challenging in, in terms of I think what Aaron was sort of hinting at and he didn't come right out and say it is that there are a lot of people who are making policy for public schools that 
do want to set standards and would probably argue. I don't think Aaron was arguing with you as much as saying there are people. Here's what I'm up against. Yeah. Yeah, Right. Yeah. Yeah. No. And and that's great. I mean, you know, bring it on because that's the challenge that we're we're all facing right now. Mm -hmm. And, you know, interestingly, um, I had a meeting with our board of directors in New York and um, one of them is is a vice president of Ziff Investments, hardcore dollars and cents investment firm. And when I mentioned relationships, this was several years ago and how important it was. And this was before we kind of came full circle and we had Bryken Schneider out of uh, University of Chicago say, hey, no relationships, no learning, you know. And before we had that hard data behind it, um, I mentioned relationships and all the educators on my board said, oh, that sounds fuzzy to me. And this guy from Ziff Investments said, are you kidding me? He said, I'm from a major corporation here, and if we didn't have that in, it built into our HR plan, human resources, and built into everything we do, we wouldn't have the hard-nosed outcomes that we get. You mean to tell me in education you have to fight for the concept of building a relationship with the kids in order to succeed? So it was so ironic that that was coming from you know that kind of dollars and cents corporation, and he was trying to convince the humanistic educators that they should actually do that. Now, don't let me forget to get to number six here, but I want to go okay. – I want to veer off in a little different direction because, again, Aaron brought up the point of there are a lot of students that come to school and they're not ready to, to learn. And I think they would be in what would be called that sort of at-risk group. In your bio, it said that you descri- you described yourself as a former high-risk youth. Mm. And I want you to sort of talk about that a little bit if you don't mind. Yeah, yeah. Um, the uh, I, I guess that that label would have been soft to apply to me at the time, <laughs> um, but uh, you know I, I I just had so many uh, different uh, kinds of circumstances that I grew up in um, that were very very difficult. And uh, when I was uh, just a baby, I was basically dropped off in a foster care um, situation, and I came out to a more difficult situation when I was four. And then I wound up back in a group home when I was 15. So I actually came here after having you know, left that home and gone to college and then worked a few years in New York and then went on to grad school. And um, so you know, I, I, I do have a personal passion for what we're doing. And I do also have a different perspective on what the, what the kids need and why they're doing what they do sometimes. Okay. Well, I appreciate that. I wanted to get that. I wanted to learn more about about your your start. Right. Well, it's clear you're very passionate about this. And so it, it, it makes sense that you would have had some difficulties early on in order to, to build up on this passion. Yeah. Somebody yeah. who had a smooth trip through, yeah, probably not so much, wouldn't see the need. Well, you know, hopefully that, they, that we can get them to see the need too, Mary, because uh, we're all interconnected. Mm-hmm. And if we've, if we've got, you know, a third of our kids bombing out, or for that matter, you know, some of our policies that actually help them to bomb out. Like if they're truant, then we suspend them. Yeah, right. <laughs> you know, I say, well, sure, you're, 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 uh, you know, you're out of day. Take the week off. Yeah. yeah. And and for yeah. that for that matter, maybe you can, you know, uh, rob a house or two while you're out there. Watch a little television, and then you'll be ready for school. Yeah. yeah. Makes a lot of sense, right? So uh, I think I think we're, we're, we're we are all connected to the same kids that we think are just on the fringes, right? We have a, only about uh, seven or eight minutes <clears throat> to go, but I want to give the phone numbers again: eight five five zero eight one one eight seven seven two eight five nine three four eight and noon at indiana dot edu. Alan Blankstein is our guest. He's from the Hope Foundation. I'm, I'm learning more about and interested in um, different learning styles, and I'm wondering, we talked uh, briefly during the break about different ways to reach different kids. Are you looking at learning styles as part of your models? Yes. I mean, I support that completely. It's not exactly the work that we do, but what we do is we empower the leaders uh, to make good decisions, mm-hmm. and often that's among the decisions that they would make is to address, you know, um, different methodologies for teaching in particular that, uh, that, that get to the different learning styles of the students. And, you know, another thing, back to Aaron's question, which I really appreciate. So my, my coming back here, Aaron, isn't to slam you while you're off the radio or anything. <laughs> um, but uh, I think that one of the um, antidotes to students not wanting to show up to school is to have the school be meaningful for them. Mm-hmm. Oh, absolutely. And it's meaningful for them if they're succeeding. 
and if you're reaching um, them in a way that they need to be reached, and that gets back to your learning styles. Okay. Well, I, we have an email, but before that, I'm just going to read the number six, and you can comment on it very briefly if you want. I just don't want to forget it. Building sustainable leadership capacity. Mm, Real yeah. quick comment? The real quick comment on that is that we like to leave after a few years. There are too many districts that we're in um, and there are too many districts in the country for us to be everywhere forever. Um, we build the capacity so that we can leave and these schools that we leave keep going. Okay. All right. Okay. Here's an email that came in. Uh, big question. The previous caller talked about what does a school do when the failure is outside the school? What about when it's the failure of the entire community like New Orleans? Even before Katrina, New Orleans was notorious for its failing schools. Down there, for example, a majority of students would often not show up for the first day or days of school just because it was local tradition not to. Now they hardly have buildings to hold classes in and the shortage of teachers is horrific. How would you help a community like the Big Easy? I don't know if I could. Um, it's not that it can't be done. It's that I don't know if I can do it, uh, I being, you know, the organization. Mm-hmm. Uh, we could, if we if we were to do anything, uh, we could work within those schools that are ready to improve. And the the only thing I'll say about that, which I kind of alluded to before, is we like the concept of positive deviance. That means that, you know, up until um, the 90s, uh, the, the Save the Children Foundation used to send lots of food to Vietnam and they'd eat the food and then they'd be hungry again. Uh, starting in the 90s, the director said, let's find those kids who are doing relatively well, even given these starvation circumstances. And then let's facilitate conversations in which those children and their families can talk to the rest of the families who aren't doing as well. And within um, six months, I believe it was, or maybe it was 18 months, they cut it down to uh, 50% of the malnutrition rate that was there before. So I like the idea of positive deviance, meaning that we'll identify those successes that we can help to spread. I think if you look at it in its entirety and say, hey, what are we going to do about the whole state or the whole city or whatever, the whole nation right now? Like I said about South Africa, it's intractable. So let's start with those who are ready to succeed within that dire context and then help them to spread the success. This is sort of a logical follow-up to that, I think. Uh, hopefully it's logical. But there are a lot of groups, not maybe not a lot, but there are some groups that are doing the same kinds of things that you are, I mean variations of, of what you're doing. Um, and I think a lot of it maybe came out of the idea, whether it's correct or not correct, that our schools are failing. You know, we've seen Time magazine's cover that say that kind of thing. I mean, do you think that the public school system in the United States is failing uh, or it just needs to be sort of uh, reinvigorated? If it's the choice between the two, Bob, I go number two. (laughs) (laughs) You can pick your own. Yeah, bad question. Pick your own. No, no, no. It's it's good. Uh, I think it's a very viable question. You know, we – I think there are a lot of political reasons for slamming the public school system and you're starting to see them showing up with private schools, um, getting the money that the public schools used to get. Mm-hmm. Um, can schools get better too? Yes. Um, are, is the system you know, uh, intractably broken? Do we need to defund it and do something – just throw it out the window? No, absolutely not. It would, it would destroy our democracy or any chance for having one. Mm-hmm. Talk about your conferences. What happens at your conferences? Great things. <laughs> um, well, we've got different formats. So uh, the, the quick and easy format is the two-day conference. And uh, people come in. Um, they get uh, uh, the kinds of things you'd expect, keynotes and breakouts. The difference is that we also connect the design so that it's one smooth flow. And uh, they'll even get, you know, homework assignments for that evening. And they said, what do you mean homework? We're here to golf. <laughs> he said, well, you, you need to go to that other company's, uh, you know, conference then. We're, we're here to work. Um, so that's probably the difference on that. And we try to um, uh, facilitate building on what they're already doing well. In the longer conferences, we do that more intensively. We even create cohorts so that they wind up having, you know, a, a, a larger network of people of like demographics to them mm-hmm. to leave with and to stay in touch with as they move the, the, the process forward. Mm-hmm. I think probably the biggest difference in our conferences um, uh, in some way is that it's part of a longer continuum. We, 
we tell them that up front and we tell them that on the way out. And if they're ready to access that continuum, they can. Where does your funding come from? Your 501c3? Yeah, it's all it's all fee for service at the moment, or you know, ninety five percent. We get five percent from donations or from uh, you know particular grants. Mm-hmm. Um, and then when I say fee for service, don't forget that that ultimately does come from federal and state and local funding. Mm-hmm. But it just comes through those who want to use our service mm-hmm. instead of to us. Mm-hmm. So we only, we only have about two minutes to go. Um, how many school corporations are you working with at this point? I don't know the exact number and it's changing rapidly because there's – I mean like every day there are a couple more that, that want to work with us. And then like I said, we'll, we'll, we'll define whether they can or not. So I don't know what the number is now. I know that we're in more than 12 states mm-hmm. um, and that we um, are also in Canada. And then, as I mentioned before, we're advising the Ministry of Education in South Africa on a nationwide effort. Mm-hmm. So how, how do you – this might be a – need a longer <clears throat> answer than the minute and a half we've got left. But after you've worked in a school corporation, how do you define whether you think that your work really was successful? Well, that's great. I mean we have milestones all the way along. So you know, on the front end, it's got to do with their engagement uh, in the in the process, and uh, shortly after that, it's got to do with school with student uh, attendance and test scores, and not to mention staff attendance and staff mm-hmm. you know staff changed behavior. So we've got pieces uh, that we do along the way to measure those elements, and then finally, as I mentioned before, in the long run, our goal is to be able to leave and have them keep going and growing. So that sustainability piece needs to kick in, and uh, we look back on districts that we, you know, that we started in 2000, let's say, and we're so excited to see that they're just thriving, and and we're delighted that it's not because of us anymore, quote unquote. Uh-huh. Yeah. Uh, the Hope Foundation harnessing optimism and potential through education. Alan Blankstein has been our guest. Alan. Uh, an email address or a, a website in case people want more information? Thank you. Um, the website's uh, www.hopefoundation.org. Uh, my email is alan at hopefoundation.org. Um, and uh, listen, the way we're growing, we could use really great people to join us, um, not only in, in the voluntary staff but also on staff. Um, so, you know, give us a call. Okay. Yeah. Thanks a lot. It's a, we're, we are out of time. So thank you to Alan Blankstein, also to Mary Catherine Carmichael, producer Catherine Hageman, and engineer Mike Pashkash. I'm Bob Zaltzberg. Thanks for listening. Noon Edition is a production of WFIU and the Herald Times.